This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a production from Swiss Info, the international public media company of Switzerland. In today's programme... In southern Turkey, buildings crumble like sand. Every member of Sarin is... is uh a volunteer, uh, so no one gets paid for any of the work uh, we do. Our sole aim is minimize human suffering uh, due to the impact of uh, natural or man-made disasters. Right now, new earthquake hit, the buildings fell down. This buildings fall down, everything fell down around. We were expecting a big earthquake in Istanbul, and we were calculating the number of people that are going to lose their lives and the number of economic losses. The role of businesses there was to be prepared before and help the economic recovery afterwards. Rescue teams are still trying to find survivors more than 90 hours after the quakes. The UN says more help is on its way and has urged governments not to hinder aid supplies. We oftentimes see the challenges uh, come from the differences between the business community, the private sector and humanitarian organizations, not just the UN. Excavators clear the rubble. She only has a few hours to salvage whatever she can. When I hear about private-public partnerships, I always say in terms of the private, what's in it for them? And the question of a private company being totally neutral or altruistic, I still have my doubts. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. And today, exactly one year after the devastating earthquakes that shook Turkey and Syria, we're going to take a look at earthquake response. How do emergency workers even begin when the destruction, as it was last year, is so great when whole towns are flattened? How do international teams work with local emergency services? We'll be getting an inside look at a search and rescue team, and then later we'll be hearing about a UN initiative to harness the skills, experience and resources of local business when disaster strikes. But first... My name is Filip Kiratov. Uh, I'm Bulgarian uh, and I work uh, as a structural engineer in uh, London. I am also a volunteer urban search and rescue engineer and technician uh, with Search and Rescue Assistance in Disasters, or sorry, UK. When the earthquake struck on February 6th last year, Philippe and his Sarade urban search and rescue team were in the UK. But seeing the news from Turkey, they knew that Sarade, as a United Nations classified rescue team, would be called on. Sarade is 100% volunteer charity. Um, so every member of Sarade is... is uh, a volunteer, uh, so no one gets paid for any of the work uh, we do. Our sole aim is minimize human suffering uh, due to the impact of uh, natural or man-made disasters. And usually um, that would mean urban search and rescue in the aftermath of earthquakes or any, any other, uh, as I said, natural disasters. We are also uh, classified with the UN. How soon were you sent to Turkey after the earthquake? 
Um, so Sarit sent uh, a team of 19 people in two groups. Uh, the earthquake occurred on the 6th of February. Uh, and we sent a first team of eight people on the 7th of February. Um, and I went uh, with the second group of 11. 11 more people went on the 9th of February. So two and a half to three days after the event. What were your impressions when you got there, when you saw what had happened? I think the scale of destruction in Turkey was different to anything I'd seen. We were deployed to Kermanmaraş, uh, which is the city uh, very close to the second earthquake event that happened. Um, and it had neighborhoods that were basically totally destroyed. Uh, we're talking about very heavy, multi-story reinforced concrete buildings uh, that are basically have suffered a total collapse. Something that always I ask myself when I see this is somebody from outside, skilled, yes, but you arrive on the scene of of real destruction. How do you how do you know where to start? Yeah, that's a very key point, and and, and I think this is probably you know where our conversation should focus on for for a little while, but. Um, coordination and organization and protocols are extremely key in such an event because, you know, in, in, in such a huge scale uh, disaster, there needs to be a system that to be followed to be able to, to be effective. Uh, so the, the most important thing we train for is being effective because we arrive in a situation that is heavily burdened from all sides, from uh, you know, from the from the sheer damage and loss of lives to uh, you know to resource uh, depletion um, and and so on. So if you're not effective, if, if 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 you go there and you're not ready to and knowing what how to start, uh, you're basically adding to the burden, and this is not what we want to do. Um, there's different levels of assessment, search and rescue. Uh, within the guidelines uh, by which which we follow, being a, a UN classified team, um, and the first one is what is called the white area assessment, uh, which is basically a reconnaissance exercise um, where teams are sent out to to do a preliminary assessment of where the damage is, which is rough and ready. Uh, we then go into the next level, uh, which is then what we call triage. Uh, so basically trying to identify sites on which uh, there are live victims trapped within the collapse uh, and then try to estimate um, the duration of time which is going to take to extricate them. And this is followed by, uh, you know, the, the actual search and rescue exercise where we try to exactly locate the victim, uh, de devise a method by which to provide access to the victim, uh, and then safely extricate them. When we see a search and rescue, if we watch the news, it's always narrowed down to the few seconds when somebody is found alive inside a collapsed building under the rubble. I have a feeling that the reality of the work is not quite like that. So if I can give you, uh, you know... Um an example that we try and describe this by using a, an anecdote. 
the first group of eight um, SAR-8 members uh, was sent to assist with coordination because we also trained to uh, provide coordination capability. And as they arrived, um, they were basically called to a live rescue by a, um, should I call a friendly team to us, which is a German German uh, light user team called Adfire. So they got in touch with, with our team and they basically said, we've been working on this site for 12 hours. We're absolutely uh, exhausted and are struggling to continue. Could you please come and, and, and give us help and basically rotate in our place? Because the situation was that there was a mother and her young son uh, within the basement of a six-story building that has had collapsed on top of the basement, basically pancaked what we call the floor slabs, which is touching each other. Um, so our team went there and assisted them with whatever we could. Uh, we had a medic and we had engineers that um, took over the rescue mission. An urgent call for quiet. These rescuers need complete silence. They've heard voices. A British-German team are helping local people to search. They risk their lives for moments like this. A mother and child pulled from the ruins, freezing, exhausted, but alive. And within another um, more than six hours uh, from when our team went to help, they managed to uh, rescue the mother and her son out of that basement. Um, so, yeah, it can, it can take a very long time. We train to, um, to do 12-hour rotations. So the idea is that we have um, rotation every 12 hours because if you do know that there's a live person in the rubble, you're not going to leave them alone. People in the earthquake zone who've been affected by it must invest a lot of hope in you. Yes, I, I presume so. I think this is... Um, I think our role is, is important in at least two ways. So one is the, uh, the direct search and rescue, actually saving people. However, we need to be realistic. In a disaster of the scale of, of Turkey, you can only, uh, have, you only have a resource uh, to attend to, to uh, collapses. You don't have the resource to, to basically search all the rubble because it's so huge. However, you know, and, and this is really important and, you know, and we were part of saving people's lives and, and that's absolutely key. That's what we do. That's what we train for. Uh, but there's, there's another, another part of it, which is basically showing people that are affected that they're not alone. So that's more of a sort of social support to the local people. Because as you arrive in your uniform and you wear whichever country's flag uh, on your shoulder... You know, they feel like there's someone that has come to support them in the difficult situation they're in. And I think that brings back hope. One thing, um, and this is something, it's also slightly journalists' perspective. We show only the short bits, the rescue bits. We also, I think, have a tendency to say, why aren't the helpers there sooner? Why aren't they working faster? I suspect that that is a lack of understanding about how some of these things work. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, a, you know, I think that's a major, major um, discussion point in, in these situations. And, uh, you know, obviously I don't want to delve into this, but Syria was one instance, you know, where assistance was, was uh, essential, but maybe it was more limited than what happened in Turkey. 
And, you know, uh, in part, what happened in Syria answers that question, which is that we only would deploy if a request for international assistance has been issued. Um, we wouldn't go there of our own accord. That's what we call uh, disaster tourism. That's what we try to avoid. So that's one thing. We, you know, we train and we are ready to react 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, as cliche as it sounds. It's what we try to do. Uh, as long as we, there is a request for us to, to deploy, we can deploy a team within 24 hours. But, you know, this is obviously on the basis that there's already been a request for assistance. And this may take a much longer while for, for many different reasons. I'll give you an example as the recent earthquakes in Morocco. The damage was in very, very um, remote areas that were very difficult to get to, uh, at which point the uh, Moroccan government made a decision to only invite teams from country they have bilateral agreements with and not issue a blanket international assistance request because they didn't know uh, what they're going to be able to do with a big amount of international teams uh, descending on Morocco. So I suppose people that listen to your podcast or, or new people, they will understand that the complexity of the situation uh, unfortunately leads to delays on on a lot of the occasions where, where disaster happens. But, you know, we should try and, and work towards minimizing that and trying to, uh, you know, include more countries into cooperating uh, for the readiness uh, to, to respond to a disaster so that this can become, uh, you know, a, a quicker, quicker exercise. I have been talking to this group that the, the UN has, has kind of developed, hooking up humanitarian relief disaster response with local communities and local business communities. How important is it for you when you land in a place and maybe you've never been there before to communicate and coordinate with people who, who know the, the area? It's uh, absolutely essential. Um, there, there cannot be a search and rescue phase without the intelligence information of the local community. International USAR teams' primary role is assistance to the locals. We're not there to lead any effort. We're there to assist where and as required. So, uh, you know, also, of course, we can do nothing uh, without understanding the situation without knowing where uh, people may be trapped, without understanding the building typologies, the construction typologies, um, and so on. So this is on the community side, you know, we're very much reliant on, on the information from the local community. Philippe Kirasov there with some really interesting insights into how an international search and rescue team works. And as you heard him say, despite all their undoubted engineering skills, an international team like SARAID needs the input, the knowledge and the experience of local people. That's something the UN recognises. In the past, too many humanitarian efforts have been less efficient than they might have been because international teams fly in and try to hit the ground running without taking time to assess their surroundings and talk to locals about what's needed where. But in 2016, 
the UN created its Connecting Business Initiative. It's run jointly by the UN's Office for Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, and the UN Development Programme, UNDP. The aim? To engage the private sector strategically before, during and after emergencies. And by doing so, increase the scale and effectiveness of emergency response and recovery. Now it sounds logical. Who knows a local community better? Who might have trucks available? Who knows where the power lines are? Who has local IT skills? The answer, local people, local businesses. But does it work? Humanitarians and business entrepreneurs are not necessarily cut from the same cloth. Their goals and motivations can be very different. But when that massive earthquake hit Turkey last year, the local office of the Connecting Business Initiative sprang into action. To find out how that went, I got the initiative's reasonary, Erhan Arslan of the Turkish Enterprise and Business Confederation Turkonfed, and our own analyst, Daniel Warner, all into our virtual studio. Riza and Erhan joined us from Istanbul, and they began by telling us what those first hours were like when the earthquake hit. I came from the Philippines, so I've always prepared myself um, for that scenario when I would one day wake up and see messages that the magnitude 7.2, the big earthquake, or the big one we call it in, in, in Metro Manila, will also happen. It happened on a Monday here in my second home. Um, it happened around 4 a.m. And when I woke up, we have this WhatsApp group uh, with CBI member networks all around the world, and, and the messages just exploded. So that was the first sign that when I saw it and I said, something's up. We were expecting a big earthquake in Istanbul. And we were calculating the potential, uh, the number of people that are going to lose their lives and the number of economic losses. And there are earthquakes, but there are also uh, landslides, uh, fires uh, in Turkey. So Turkey is a disaster-prone country. For that region, Kahramanmaraş, Hatay, Gaziantep, and the surrounding regions, we were, of course, expecting a, a disaster. But the role of businesses there was to be prepared before and help the economic recovery afterwards. And we knew that the problem was very big because the internet infrastructure was down. The phones didn't work. We couldn't reach out to no one in the first uh, few hours. And the magnitude of, of this disaster is so big that the follow-up disaster, the second earthquake, was bigger than the first one. Tell us then what you've been doing in the, the months since. You know, as a journalist, you know, we leave a week often after a disaster and we kind of forget about it. But obviously, the damage is still there. So the first 48 hours, we tried to come up with a situation report. That was the first thing we tried to do, uh, damage assessment in the first 48 hours. And then the first three days where human lives can be saved from the rubbles, we urged our members to take part in the life-saving aspect of it. And for the second one, we 
gathered our disaster emergency desk to uh, coordinate the efforts that our members brought together, like humanitarian aids. So in the first two weeks, our members were able to bring together $11 million worth of supplies, food, blankets, and other emergency uh, aids that the people may need uh, in the region. And then we moved on the second uh, phase, which was shelter. Since people lost their houses, uh, and if they were lucky, they were alive, uh, they had places to live and they had places to to go work, uh, which was the economic recovery aspect of it. That's where we are at the moment. We are on the second step. Uh, and the third uh, step would be the economic recovery of that region. We know that that region was already economically disadvantaged. Now it's going to be even further behind. Uh, we have to come up with ways to remedy the d- disparity of development. Danny, and you've got a number of things I think you want to say. <laughs> well, I mean, $11 million of supplies and the interest of the private is certainly positive. But I have a very crude, simple question. The object of private sector is to make money. The object of the humanitarian is humanitarian. There are two different mentalities there. It's not just a question of language. I know that you say it's a win-win situation, but for business people, aren't they interested in making money? Erhan, I think you are first to answer that. Well, the answer is a careful yes. In times like these, of course, the businesses, the raison d'etre of businesses is to make money, as you said. But at, at times like these, you can also look at it through a strategic standpoint. What I mean by that is you have to get, as the business community, get the supply chain going again from that region to other regions and vice versa. After the earthquake, our situation report shows that large enterprises were standing, most of them, I would say 90%. And the smaller enterprises, conversely, were torn down because the buildings were torn down and the stores under the buildings were torn down. So smaller enterprises had to get going first to supply to larger and medium enterprises and the workforce had to have a home to go to work. It was that simple, uh, if you look at it uh, from that business and profit mentality. But at the same time, the first 14 days, that mentality paused and tried to save human lives. And how do you guys get on with each other? I'm just wondering, on the one side, you've got the United Nations and kind of the, the United Nations lens on, on things. And on the other is the business. I mean, Riza, do you find uh, different perspectives coming up against each other in a disaster response where you've got business and then humanitarian trying to work together? I'm glad you asked that. It makes logical sense uh, for businesses to be involved And I wish that the UN keeps on doing a much better job in this. But among the many partners, uh, and we know this, that get involved in humanitarian response, there's always this one actor, which is critical, but oftentimes overlooked due to various reasons. And and that is the business community. And I know exactly how this feels, because before joining the UN, I was also from the private sector. 
So day one, when when uh, we made sure to connect with with Turkinfed with their members, also provided information to the other CBI member networks who are asking information, how they can help. We knew that there is an opportunity and a need, actually, to bring the business community, the local and international private sector actors closer to the coordination mechanism that's being set up for the Turkey Earthquake response. So that's why I was deployed as the private sector engagement focal point supporting the UN humanitarian coordination mechanism and the response. But what I did at the time was facilitate connections, provide information, liaise with local and international business actors who wanted to support the humanitarian response and really making sure that everyone understands how important it is to include the private sector during the response, but at the same time during recovery. You've heard from Erhan really from the very, very first day, from the beginning, private sector has been there. When the UN uh, mission, the international uh, search and rescue missions were asking for help when it comes to accommodation in the affected areas, we immediately asked Turkunfed, is this something that you can help us with given the, the gap? How can we augment or support the UN mission, the different international search and rescue missions who are finding it difficult to book accommodation or find accommodation in the affected areas? Turkan Fed really provided that opportunity. They gave the international SAR missions or search and rescue missions with, with hotels in the affected provinces where the hotels were still working. And that really helped uh, the, the incoming missions. When they asked for trucks, Turkan Fed and their members mobilized trucks to help the search and rescue mission to transport their things uh, in, in the affected provinces. So we know that no one actor can do this alone, but I do want to say that there have been challenges and lessons learned when it comes to how the business community engage in humanitarian response. We've oftentimes see the challenges uh, come from the differences between the business community, the private sector, and humanitarian organizations, not just the UN. And this stems from the language, the approach, the pace that the different actors use. So practically, when the UN uses terms that normally the private sector is not familiar with, and then you have the business community that they also have their own way of doing things. And we see that this is, um, you know, uh, this difference sometimes leads to the inability to coordinate our activities properly and can result to duplicating efforts. That's why we, we wanted to make sure that there is that focal point or an opportunity to make each other, the business community, the UN or the humanitarian um, agencies understand each other when it comes to the response. Erhan, I'll bring you first. Do you want to respond to that? Do you think you guys understand each other now? I can say we are closer than ever. I want to uh, underline one point that Riza mentioned because not one actor can do it all. So when this earthquake happened, we had to learn a lot of new things that we haven't known for years and years uh, in terms of logistics, in terms of accommodation, uh, in terms of communication, timing, uh, for instance, what truck can carry these tents or what truck can carry these containers of food and what communication is the best way to reach out or which hotels are open, uh, how can we communicate or reach out to this actor? We uh, had a 
crisis desk of 15 people, and they had to excel at these missions for the next 10 days. Uh, but they had to be advanced in these situations in the next 48 hours after the earthquake. So uh, it was a very dire task. Again, since the earthquake was very big, earthquakes were big. So now our coordination efforts are more uh, aligned and uh, we know what to, what to do better next time as lesson learned. The humanitarian organizations are supposed to be neutral involved in a situation. A private enterprise or a company is difficult to see how it's neutral because they have certain self-interest. That's what companies do. How can you convince me that your companies are neutral when they're involved in a humanitarian crisis? Which of you would like to answer that? I told you there would be some devil's advocate questions. <laughs> That's my role. So to convince you, we have to look at some numbers. Businesses have to take precautions to sustain their survival. The businesses that are set up today, 50% of them are not going to be around in the first five years. And 70% of them are not going to be around in the next 10 years. So when you look at it, you have to be prepared in every way. Uh, your supply chain, your uh, human resources, your disaster resilience it's pre and, and preparedness towards it. It's a package uh, as a business owner or an employee. That mentality is one of the key factors to sustain the survival of any businesses, in my opinion. Do you think the private sector has political advantages over the UN agencies in terms of being able to go into certain regions where certain UN agencies might be declined access? Maybe I can answer that because I've seen it uh, uh, as well in some of the affected provinces and also in other countries where we have CBI member networks brokering uh, those engagements. Because at the end of the day, they are seen as local actors. They are trusted more by the government. They're trusted more by the local um, authorities and even by the NGOs organizations that operate in, in these communities. So the answer is really yes, basically because they know that uh, they are embedded in, in, in the communities where they operate and they have the existing networks, they have the intelligence that, that sometimes the UN or UN agencies or other international NGOs would normally not have in a particular situation. Okay, thank you very much. We've come just about to the end. Very interesting for me, especially because, like I said, I've spent years reporting, sometimes in the field, but often from Geneva, on disaster, humanitarian crises, and um, not heard too much about this aspect of it. Very interesting and very promising, I think, from my point of view. Danny, I'm going to come to one last question for you and then each to, to Erhan and Riza. But um, are you convinced, Danny? Because you've been so skeptical for the last half well, hour. Well, being skeptical is my nature. Remember, I'm from the Bronx. Uh, I, I'm slightly encouraged by what I've heard. But when I hear about private-public partnerships, I always say in terms of the private, what's in it for them? Uh, and the question of a private company being totally neutral or altruistic, I still have my doubts, but you've made me rethink the problem. Thank you.
Erhan, let me ask you, how are things now? What are your next steps going forward? Well, for the people in the field, in the earthquake affected regions, some of them have uh, temporary housing. Some of them are able to move back to their houses because it was slightly damaged or not damaged at all. And they are trying to find ways to reinstall the economic activities. For us, to propel that economic recovery is the key aspect of how we go on, how we go forward uh, from this. Riza, then, uh, final words to you. It's still relatively new, the Connecting Business Initiative. What's your ideal for how it should grow over the next few years? The healthy skepticism, um, such as what Daniel mentioned, is is really what keeps us uh, up at night. But at the same time, it it helps us uh, understand and and a reminder of of the things that we need to do to move the needle when it comes to uh, how we define the role of the businesses in, in preparedness, response and recovery. It's been seven years We started with a couple of CBI member networks during the World Humanitarian Summit, and now we're we're 15 networks strong. And these networks are always a a constant inspiration to us of, of the different ways they work with their government partners, the way they work with the UN. Um, and we do hope that we always showcase the work that they do in national, regional, and global platforms, amplifying their stories that this can work. Working with the private sector, it can work, uh, and that it can lead to um, better communities and resilient societies. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Philip Kirazov, Riza Neri, Erhan Arslan and Daniel Warner for sharing their time, experiences and analysis with us. If you enjoyed this edition of the podcast, do join us next time when we'll be assessing the war in Ukraine. What is Russia's plan two years on? How strong is the West's commitment to defending Ukraine? And can the United Nations play any role in ending this conflict? Or is it reduced to handing out aid parcels? That's out on February 20th. And check out some of our previous episodes of Inside Geneva, including in-depth interviews with the men and women who've done what's called the UN's toughest job, UN Human Rights Chief. You can find us, subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info, the international public media company of Switzerland. It's available in many languages as well as English, so check out our other content at www.swissinfo.ch. Imogen folks, thanks again for listening and do join us next time on Inside Geneva.
Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.